Good morning, Redeemer. It's good to see you guys and be with you. We are uh, closing out our series today through the book of Philippians. Uh, it's been a great, uh, a great book to walk through, a book of, of great joy and a book uh, where, where we've seen that Jesus really is worth it all. He's worth all of our praise, all of our uh, honor, all of our worship, um, all of our lives. Uh, we are, we are going to start next week, so we're closing out Philippians today. We're going to start next week a series through the book of Luke. Uh, which I'm excited about. It will be quite uh, a little bit longer of a series, as you might imagine, uh, than the Philippians one, but to walk through a gospel uh, is, is wonderful. And so we're going we're gonna to do that. Um, Paul, this week, we'll see he's closing out his letter uh, by mentioning again his gratitude for the church's gift that they sent to him uh, by Epaphroditus. But I think he does this, uh, as Paul often does, he can't really say anything simply without, uh, without preaching. He's a preacher, you know. He can't say anything without, um, without teaching. And so uh, he does it in a way, I think, that emphasizes the generosity of the gospel. So we're gonna see uh, three things today. The church's generosity, Paul's generosity, and then God's generosity. Let's pray once more, and we'll, we'll dive into the text. Father, we thank you uh, for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for your word. I thank you that you've spoken to us, that you've given us a book. Um, Lord, would you help us to, to understand um, and, and help us more than just to understand, to, to really stand underneath your word. Um, Lord, we, we are not, uh, we don't know what's best. We are so limited. We are so weak and frail. Uh, Lord, but you know everything. You're the wise one. Um, you're the, the great God of all. Uh, and so we need your wisdom. We need your uh, direction. And so would you speak into our hearts and would we truly be open to whatever you'd have to say to us? Um, please do this by your spirit. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. First, we're gonna see the, the church's generosity. The church's generosity. Uh, verse 14, still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. We've seen this idea of partnership already in the book of Philippians. Uh, it's been a thread that's kind of throughout. Paul starts off even chapter one uh, by saying, uh, you know, that I, I give thanks to God for, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This church has been generous to Paul. Um, Epaphroditus brought the money, the most, gift, the most recent gift uh, to, to Paul from them. But we also see here that they sent money to Paul before. Right? In fact, he has a long-time partnership with this church uh, that, that, and a partnership that he didn't have with any other church in Macedonia, he said. Uh, the language uh, here, Paul uses of giving and receiving, giving and receiving. It's from the marketplace. It's a commercial metaphor, uh, and it's talking about reciprocity. Right, so one company provides a service, you know, the other company pays the, uh, you know, the agreed upon rate. We do this favor for you, you do this favor for us. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We know about reciprocity. And though it's a commercial metaphor, Paul's using it to describe, I think, his partnership, his friendship with this church. Um, I, I've noticed that in, in uh, traditional cultures, I think reciprocity is a little more important than it is for us uh, in, in Western cultures. Paul, of course, was a part of a more traditional culture. Um, when I lived overseas uh, for a year in high school, 
Uh, when, when my friends and I were, were on the bus together on a school trip, you know, we would stop and we might go into a little market or a gas station and buy, you know, buy some snacks, get back on the bus. That's pretty standard, right? Uh, but what I learned was in that culture, uh, which was a much more traditional culture, you, you share everything. Okay, so me as a, as a Westerner, I thought, I'm going to sit back on the bus and I'm going to eat my bag of chips that I bought. Uh, but, but what really happened was I opened my bag of chips, took one bite, and then, you know, the guy next to me asked for a chip, and so I gave it to him, and he, and he gave me one of one of his things, and then the guy across the aisle gave me some of his, and then the guy in front, until my, I was out of chips, right? But I'd had a bite of everyone else's snack on the whole bus. This is, this is how it worked. Um, and and this, this is, they didn't understand any other way, right? And, and there was a cultural difference. Giving and receiving. Um, Paul gave them the gospel, this church. He planted this church. And they, are, 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 they received that, and now they're giving. They're, they're meeting his needs as he takes the gospel forward. It, it seems, however, that Paul didn't have the same relationship with many churches, which was interesting. Um, he, he, would, he would often not accept money or support from churches that he planted, in Thessalonica, for instance, um, which is also in Macedonia, not very far from, from Philippi, um, he, the Philippian church says, you supported me, uh, you know, you supported me several times. Uh, why didn't Paul, you might ask, why didn't Paul take money from the Thessalonians when he was there? Well, if you read one of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, uh, you, can, you can see why. Um, this is Second uh, Thessalonians. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and who does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It's not that we don't have the right to support but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For, what, for we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They're not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. So there were some at Thessalonica who needed to learn to work hard, or to provide for themselves, and Paul says, it's not that we didn't have the right to ask for support. It's not that we, that was you know, wrong for us to do, but we wanted to be an example of, of hard work, of providing for yourself. Um, so to, because this church needed that example. They needed someone to imitate. And this is, this is speculation, but maybe uh, Lydia you know, at, at Philippi, maybe she heard what was going on uh, at Thessalonica since it wasn't far away. And she thought, man, I, I'm sure Paul needs some support. So she sent some money. Right, to help fund the ministry. Why, why did Paul not enter into this type of, of giving and receiving relationship with, with any other church when he left Macedonia? We, we can't say for certain, but 1 Corinthians 9, I think, gives us some, some insight into Paul's mindset. Uh, it says this in verse 11, if we've sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who perform the temple service eat food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. 
For my part, I have used none of these rights, nor have I written these things that they may be applied to my case. What then is my reward? To preach the gospel and offer it free of charge and not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. Paul says he, he has the right to be provided for by the church, right, by a church that he plants, by a church that he ministers to, um, but he refused to take advantage of that right so that he wouldn't hinder the gospel. He, he wants to offer it free of charge for as many people to hear as possible, and he doesn't want to open himself up to accusations of ulterior motives, like, oh, man, he's just in it for, he's just in it for the paycheck. He's just in it for what, what benefits he'll get. It seems that Paul sometimes judged, often judged, that taking money from churches he planted, while completely moral, completely appropriate, offered an opportunity for accusations of those who would try to call his apostleship into question, would try to tarnish his reputation, which is what he's doing and is what he's talking about in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 9. So he didn't. Right? He worked with his hands. Uh, he, he made tents in Corinth. He worked and made, made tents. He was a tent maker. And, and he received support from his partners in ministry, from the Philippian church, the little church at Philippi. Um, and, and we see their generosity, I think, especially in this most recent time when Epaphroditus almost died on the journey because they sent their support a long way. Right? If Paul is, is in Rome, which I, I, I think he, he is, uh, when he wrote this letter, it would be almost 800 miles, or around 800 miles, which some estimate, you know, in the ancient world would be anywhere from a month to uh, two months, a month to eight weeks, seven or eight weeks. The Philippians were, they were committed to Paul and to his ministry and to taking the gospel forward. They generously gave multiple times, again and again. They kept in touch with Paul as best they could in the ancient world to know where he was, what his needs were, what, how, what they could do. And, and they even risked their lives to help him, some of them. And I think this is an example of how the gospel goes forward, especially to new areas. Paul, he was a frontier missionary. He, he, he was someone who, who, who was taking the gospel and the message to new areas and to people who hadn't ever heard before. This was his ambition, right? In Romans, he says, to preach the gospel where it's not been heard. And when we think of Paul, like this great apostle, this trailblazer, this courageous champion of the gospel, a mighty preacher and teacher and writer and, and his theological mind, I think we don't usually think of his partners in the ministry, but he couldn't have done it without them. We don't think of this little Philippian church, but I think we should. We should. We should see Lydia, you know, selling her high-end purple, clo purple cloth to the rich in Philippi. We should see the centurion uh, with his family and, and their, their government salary. We should see the, the slave girl who was delivered, who Paul delivered um, from a demon whatever, with whatever job she had, however she scraped together her living. They were all patrons of the Apostle Paul. They had a special relationship with him. They loved him. And they just kept supporting him. And Paul writes this letter in part to thank them for their generosity. And, and the gospel still needs to go forward to dark places. There are unreached people groups in the world, places where not only are there no Christians, there, there's, no, there's no workers, there, there's, there's no even, even foreign missionaries there trying to plant churches, trying to make disciples. And, and they don't just need money, right? Missionaries don't just need money, they need partners. 
They need partners in the ministry who will give, who will pray, who will get on Zoom calls, uh, who will go and, and will visit them regularly. They need partners who are invested, who will keep on giving, right? Keep, they'll keep, keep the relationship going. Keep on giving um, as they see the need so that the gospel will move forward. I think of some of our partners that we support uh, as a church. I think of Jessica Gann, uh, who we sent to Japan uh, several years ago. Uh, it was interesting. This morning, uh, uh, Pastor Barry sent me, forwarded me an email from her, and, and there's actually going to be a prayer call tomorrow. She has, we, we do these regular prayer calls. There's a prayer call tomorrow uh, where you can get on, and you can, you can see Jessica, and you can pray for her. Um, and so do that. If you do, would you do that? Would you want to get on that prayer call and just pray for Jessica? Um, man, talk to Pastor Barry. He'll give you the link. It's tomorrow night. That's the way we can partner with her. I think of the, the Furmans in, uh, in, in Dubai. They're at a church called Redeemer Dubai. Uh, I think of Gia in the Republic of Georgia, uh, the, the Josh and Joanna Cook, right? These, these people that we support. A church our size uh, can support a lot of people, right? We have a lot of resources. And so let, let's have a vision of partnership right? so, that, so that our ministry shines the gospel into the darkest places on earth. The gospel made the Philippians generous. And they were generous toward Paul and it should, should make us generous as well. Second, let's look at Paul's generosity. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm fully support, supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Paul here says, in this, in this giving and receiving relationship, man, I, I've received it all. I'm fully supplied. There's an abundance. I got everything that I need. You've done your part. But it's interesting because Paul qualifies his comments in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. Not that I seek the gift. He, he doesn't want them to, to misunderstand. He's not after their money. He, he's already told them, all right, I'm content. <laughs> whether I have little, whether I have a lot, I, I, I've learned to be content. I don't need anything. So he says, I'm not after your money, but, but I'm after instead the profit that's increasing to your account. He continues with this commercial language, this metaphor of profit or, or interest accruing to their bank account. What does this mean? What does Paul mean that he's after? Oh, we see a clue, I think, at the end of 18 with how he describes their gift. Uh, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. This, this, is, this is Old Testament, right? Sacrificial language that he's using to describe their, their support of him. And it, it's a good parallel, right? Old Testament believers would, would offer sacrifices to God, the first of their crops, the, the best of their, uh, their herd, right? Uh, and they would burn it on the altar. They'd sacrifice it. This was a financial loss to them, of course. They didn't have the crop anymore. They didn't have the animal anymore. Uh, but it was a spiritual gain to them because it was in obedience to God. It was a way to demonstrate their love and their allegiance to him. It was a pleasing aroma to God. And in the same way, the Philippians' gift was a sacrifice. Paul says this was a pleasing aroma to God. They, they have less than their 401k because they're giving to Paul. But it was a spiritual gain because it showed their love and their allegiance to God, right? Their commitment to Paul, to the gospel, and, and, and it was a pleasing aroma 
to the Father. What does it mean that the, the prophet is accruing to their account? What, what, is, what is Paul getting at? Well, I think his te- teaching to Timothy fleshes it out a little more. First uh, Timothy six seventeen. They instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Side note, I think we should read all verses in the Bible to rich people as to us, right? Because we are the richest people in the world history. <laughs> if you're poor in America, you're rich in the world, right? We are the rich. Um, uh, verse 18, instruct them to do what's good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age. He's getting this idea from Jesus, right? From Matthew 6, 19. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You have, you have two bank accounts, right? One on earth, one in heaven. You can, you can make investments in one or the other. Which is better? Which is a better investment? On earth, where it won't and can't last? Right, where thieves break in, where moth and rust destroy, where the stock market crashes? Or in heaven, where it can't ever be taken from you? The economy in heaven is pretty good. <laughs> right? It doesn't struggle. Which of your bank accounts are you investing more into? And it's not about the money, right? God, God has enough money. He, he's fine. You know, he's doing okay. Uh, he, what does it say? So that they may take hold of that is, which is truly life, Paul says. Where your treasure is, he says, there your heart will be also. God isn't after your money. He's after your heart. But you can't give your heart to God and to money, Right, that's what Jesus says. You, you can't serve God and money. It's one or the other. God wants to give you what money can't ever offer you. True security. True hope. True joy. True life. And Paul's generosity that we see here is that he's not after their money. He's not after the gift. He's after their heavenly bank account. The gospel has made Paul content, as we saw last week. He's most happy because their earthly generosity is building up their heavenly account. He's glad that they've helped him. He's more glad that their generosity is the fruit of Jesus working among them. And as your pastors, we want you to be generous. We think God wants to be generous through you. He loves a cheerful giver. You should give to the church. Support local ministries like the Pregnancy Center, like Houston Welcomes Refugees. You should help your friends and your neighbors. You should support missionaries on the front line, as we just talked about. But, but we don't want this for our benefit. Right? Ultimately, we want this for your benefit. As you are generous, and you are generous, our church is so generous. We, we see the love of Jesus flowing from your life. 
We see the gospel working in your heart, and we see that you're storing up treasures, not on earth where it goes away, but in heaven where it can't be taken. Lastly, let's look at God's generosity. Verse 19. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Commentators point out uh, that, that in, in kind of the commercial metaphor that, of giving and receiving that Paul's been, been using, this is a sort of like brilliant Jesus juke. <laughs> he says, uh, you, you've given much to me, right? There, there's, been a, there's been a giving. You, you've given so much. I've abundantly supplied. And the question's like, well, okay, what's Paul going to give back? And he's like, my God will supply all your needs. God's going to take my side of the, of the reciprocity and meet every, all of your needs. And, and of course, he will. He will. What does verse 19 mean, though? My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I think it means at least two things. First, it means that God will provide this church's physical needs. From the context, that's, that's what it, it has to mean, that. But, but second, I think Paul is also saying something more expansive because he doesn't just say, God will provide your needs. He could have said that. But he says, God will provide your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's more expansive, isn't it? Let's look, look at these one at a time. So first it says he'll meet your needs. He'll meet your needs. Um, I, I bristle at this a little bit, just honestly, because I, I think because of the sometimes pie in the sky, you know, Christians who sort of glibly throw around how God provides. God provides, God provides. It can, it can be cheesy, or maybe it's kind of the, the you know, connotation of prosperity gospel preachers, right, who use the kind of passages like this to say, hey, just give money to the church and God will fill your bank account even more, <laughs> right? That's not what it's saying. It's not what it's saying. So is this a real rock-solid promise, right? Or is this cheesy spiritual fluff that, you know, looks good embroidered on a doily, Well, uh, Jesus himself said a similar thing, uh, Matthew 6, 31. So don't worry, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. What helps me here, what helps me to understand this, is that Paul is, is locked up right? He's writing from custody. And the promise is, God will meet all your needs. He's already said, I'm content. I don't have any needs. I'm good. And he says, God will meet all your needs. Now, we get mixed up, don't we, with our needs and our wants, right? I do this with my children, right? You don't need that, really. But, right, needs and wants, we get mixed up. And I, I can't help but think if we were in prison for our beliefs, like Paul uh, is, I, I don't know that we would naturally be saying, God has provided for all of my needs. I think we'd be saying, I need to get out of here. I need release. I need freedom. But God doesn't promise our freedom. Right? He doesn't promise most of the, the rights that we enjoy in our country. God doesn't promise a comfortable life. He doesn't promise a steady income. Uh, he doesn't promise that you won't get cancer. 
but he does promise that he will meet all your needs. So how do you reconcile this? What's a good, what's a good biblical definition of needs? First Timothy 6, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. I think you should put that on a doily. If we, have found, if we have food and clothing, verse eight, we will be content with these. Food and clothing. Have you ever gone hungry? Have you ever not had clothes to wear? And I don't mean because you didn't do your laundry. Hasn't God been faithful? Hasn't he been faithful to meet your needs? He has. He has for me. But, but we live, I think, in such a prosperous society that we easily overlook these gifts. Right? To say God meets our needs sounds like saying the electric company provides electricity. Like, well, of course they do. It's their job. They better, you know. We take it for granted. But we shouldn't take these, these simple and, and, and essential gifts of God for granted. God always meets our needs. But what about Christians who die of starvation? That's where my, my mind goes next. Right, what about Betsy Ten Boom, right, who died in a concentration camp in Germany? God didn't meet her needs. Or did he? And I think here we must look at, at the second meaning of this verse, the, the expansive part of this promise that God will meet all of our needs. And, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Why did Paul say riches and glory? Riches make sense, right? You think, okay, God will provide from his riches. He has lots of resources. And if he certainly does have all the resources. Uh, but, but it's not just riches he's talking about. It's riches in glory. Riches in glory. What is, what is God's glory? God's glory is his, his splendor, his majesty, his brightness, his beauty. John Piper says God's glory is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. So the riches in the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. And the riches and glory, and then what? The riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He also tacks on. In Christ Jesus. This is the, the fundamental way Paul talks about being a Christian. Right? A Christian is someone who has confessed their sins, who has turned to the Lord, has trusted Jesus, his life and his death, his resurrection, has been forgiven, has been justified and brought into the family, been given new life in the Holy Spirit, and then culminating in we are united with Christ. We are in Jesus. Right? We, we see this throughout um, throughout the, the New Testament, we see it throughout Paul's writing, throughout Philippians, even in, in chapter two, verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So, so why? Why this juxtaposition between the, the everyday and menial, right? Your need, he'll supply your needs, food and clothing, with the, the transcendent and the exalted, right? According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Because Paul is a preacher. 
And he wanted to convey to the church then, and he wanted to give me the chance now to tell you that God doesn't plan to only meet your physical needs. He plans to meet all your needs forever. God won't just give you food. He'll give you himself, the bread of life. He'll give you the living water so that you'll never be thirsty again. God won't just give you clothes. He'll clothe you in the perfect goodness of his son so that you can stand holy, blameless, undefiled before him on the last day. God's generosity doesn't end with our physical needs. It only begins there because he sent his son to be the savior of the world. Jesus died in your place. He gave himself for you. And as Paul says in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He continues, who, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, who was raised, who, who more than that, is seated at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for us. Who, who, can, who can separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, persecution, distress, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure, I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't you see, it's not positive thinking. It's not naive optimism. It's not spiritual fluff. It's, it's a rock-solid promise based on Jesus' death and bodily resurrection of provision here until our time is done and provision forever. He will take care of us according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Before Betsy Ten Boom died in that concentration camp, she told her sister, we must tell people what we learned here. We must tell them that there's no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Did God provide for Betsy Ten Boom? Yes. Even in a concentration camp. Even in death. We have a generous God who in Christ is our Father and he will carry us forever. We have a good shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd, what I shall not want. I have what I need. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Christ, we are swept up 
into the riches of his glory. And that's why Paul ends with verse 20. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the culmination of Philippians. It's the culmination of the universe. Right? We, we saw, we saw it in, in chapter two, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The universe culminates in praise. Honor, glory, and praise only to the one who's worthy. We see that Jesus is worthy. He's worth it all. May God overwhelm our hearts with his generosity so that we are generous and ready to share. You see how this frees you? We can, be, we can give away because we can't ever run out. <laughs> We've been given everything. And, and may our generosity and our partnership send the good news of Jesus to the farthest parts of the world. As the band comes up, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your generosity to us. Lord, we come again together uh, to celebrate your love, that you have, you have met all of our needs in Christ and, and more. <laughs> You've lavished your goodness upon us. Lord, I, I pray for anyone in here who, who doesn't know you as a good father who provides that you would pour your love into their hearts by your Holy Spirit, that they would see you for who you are, and that you would become their father. Lord, where we are, where we are so anxious and, and um, worried about how we will provide, about how we're going to eat, about how we're going to make rent next month, about uh, all of these things. We, we worry about them. We stress about them. We stress about our future. Lord, would you help us to rest? Would you help us to stand on your promises? Thank you that we can relax in Christ. Thank you that you, you take care of us. You're a good father. We trust you. We want to trust you more. Help us. We believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.